Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast that explores the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with artists, creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. What are the questions and stories that fuel your curiosity and life's work? Dr. Tara T. Green is a Black feminist, community-engaged scholar, mentor, and university professor. Her latest books, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, and See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure in the Interwar Era, provide the foundation of our conversation about storytelling and the impact of stories on the past, present, and future. From silence and storytelling to the role of memory in activism, Tara shares what she's learned in her career. She also talks about the importance of preserving and archiving stories. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 595. You know, I always have questions about why. And so, you know, one of the questions that I deal with quite a bit in um, in the work that I do in teaching students is why is there this such thing as racism? Why is there this such thing as sexism? So um, we spend a great deal of time trying to peel back the layers of trying to get an understanding of, of how humans think and why they think a certain way. That sounds massive and... <laughs> challenging mm-hmm. at times. Mm-hmm. It is. Have you have you always been attracted to the question of why? Yeah. Uh, my parents grew up in the Jim Crow South, so it was not a subject that was ignored in my house because it was an experience that they understood very early on growing up. That has to shape your entire outlook on life, on, on being willing to dive into challenging subjects? Well, certainly. And the way in which I do it is through studying stories. So they told me stories about their childhood. Well, mostly my mother and her older brother. And I'm grateful for that. My father would not share his childhood and whatever he went through growing up in rural Mississippi. So his silence on that subject meant as much to me as actually hearing details of experiences. So, um, you know, that's what I think about when I read and when I teach stories is what is there and what is not said. I'm just taking that in because I love that idea that story is both what is said and not said. That's that's powerful. Mm -hmm. Because so much of story, at least what I often hear people explain story is just what is said. Yeah. And the silence is so powerful. Well, the the silence is the most powerful oftentimes because there's empowerment and being able to tell one story, but if somebody doesn't tell a story, then there are reasons for that that we don't necessarily have access to and that we don't always have a right to. So, um that is part of I think a long archive that we don't think about, but it, but it exists. And I imagine too, I mean, did, did you want to pry out your dad's story, even though he was silent? You know, he had a stroke several years ago. So he began to, he is limited mm-hmm. in his speaking abilities, but it did something to his brain 
in such a way that he began to share parts of his childhood. Oh, wow. And um, his experiences working as an adult and at that time as, as my father. So I have learned more about him since he's had that stroke and he's had that limited ability because it took away the veil that he had there. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of the silence as much until he was silenced in some ways by the stroke. As you started to hear these stories, I mean, were you told these stories from a young age? From my mother, yes. Most certainly. We would mm-hmm. I'm closer to my mother's side of the family than I'm than I am my dad's side because um her family's in and she's from rural Louisiana and I grew up in the New Orleans area. Okay. So I just had access more to her family than I did my father's side. And so when we would visit her mother and father, there were times when we would drive, just she and I, and it was a five-hour drive, so it was quite an experience. And so she would share with me, um, because there were houses that weren't there when she was a child, but she would point out different areas where this was and what it was like and so on. So Mm -hmm. I had that opportunity to be able to be where uh, she was raised and to be able to see the land where Mm -hmm. cotton was picked and to understand her and her siblings a little bit better. How did hearing these stories begin to shape how you looked at yourself growing up and into your career? I always had a very strong um, sense of myself as a girl growing up of African descent Mm -hmm. who was Southern. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though the first years of my life, the first seven years of my life, I actually lived in Illinois. But the community that we were in, the church community, all those folks were pretty much from the South. And they've since moved back to the South as we did in the early 80s. That was always the plan for everyone. Interesting. So, um, <laughs> yeah, which was, you know, it, it's, it's a very common story that people went in the 60s for various reasons, but the plan was to go back. Some people did. Many people did. We know that mm-hmm. statistically, but some people stayed or their children stayed. But yeah, I had a very strong sense of culture, a very strong, strong sense of who I was um, as part of that culture. Mm-hmm. growing up. And it made sense then for me when I began to do searches for African-American literature and to understand um, more about African-Americans' contributions to the country. And I, and I had to research that. It was not something, information that was provided to me in my schools. That drove me, that motivated me to get that information, then eventually to get a PhD with a focus in African-American literature. As, as you're researching stories, are, are you seeing a lot of things that align with what your mom was telling you and, and her side of the family were telling you? Yeah, because there may be references. So Richard Wright's work stuck out to me quite early. And of course, he grew up in rural Mississippi. Well, so did my dad. Mm-hmm. And even though he would um, 
declare himself an atheist, didn't believe in God, he was highly um, inspired. His work is influenced by Christianity and the church because his grandmother was a Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> now, I didn't know much about Seventh-day Adventists and, yeah. and their beliefs, but it would appear that some of the references that he makes in the literature helped me to understand how Black Christians mm. had similar practices. Mm-hmm. So it was quite familiar to me. And I think that that's why I found my place in African-American literature very early. So as as you're researching these stories and, and you find your place in African-American literature, uh, how do you keep building upon that in terms of scholarship. So yeah, it's it's one thing to read and to get some enjoyment out mm-hmm. of that reading, but you know, part of what we do in grad school is to learn how to provide an a- analysis of that work. And so that's where I focus. My my work is on literary criticism. But of course, I branch out into other areas because I was very interested in music. So sometimes I do write about early blues music, particularly blues women. Recently, I've become quite interested in comedy. So um, that is what led me to look at um, Moms Mabley, uh, who's just a funny comedian who opened up doors for other comedians. Yeah. Again, this is the work of the culture. So literature captures that, but doing the study allowed me to go in to other directions. Mm. I love that. And as you start finding these stories of, of women, whether it's comedians or musicians, you know, does does that just create even more connections that that weren't seen before? Yeah, it, because it's all part of the culture of the community, and so I understood that very early on. Going to church, for example, mm-hmm. there were people that had so many different personalities and talents that they brought into that community on Sundays, or um, because I was one who grew up singing in the church choir. I still sing in the, in the, in an adult choir also. So even my understanding of music, of gospel music, um, how that moved from spirituals, but also how that branched off into other areas like the blues, Mm -hmm. I understood that I could feel that because it it was just very familiar to me. So at what point do you come across Alice Dunbar Nelson? Somewhat early in my college career, I was an English major at Dillard University in New Orleans, and someone had assigned us to read one of her short stories. I can't even remember which one at this point because I've I've read just about all of them. But what I do remember is having a sensation of knowing and not knowing because her work described a New Orleans that I was sitting in the city of New Orleans and had probably driven to campus maybe that day. And she was talking about cobblestone streets and various ways in which people looked. And so while some of that may have been familiar to me, 
I didn't know anything about cobblestone streets. So uh, <laughs> I'd never seen one before. And there are some remnants that I had seen before, but didn't know what I was looking at mm. um, in different parts of the city. So um, I met her there and she stayed with me in the back of my mind as a teacher. I would teach a short story or two, mm-hmm. but um, that would inspire me eventually to find out a little bit more about her. That would land me at the University of Delaware's library. So who was she and why did her life compel you to want to write a, an entire book about her? Well, she was born in New Orleans in 1875. As I discuss, she did not talk about her father. Um, He was probably a white man. He probably was never married to her mother, but she was raised by her mother and lived with her mother actually most of her life until her mother passed away. She had a sister and she would marry three times, first to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So people tend to know her through him. Uh, And she died in Philadelphia in 1935. But between 1875 and 1935, Mm -hmm. she moved several times. She lived in Brooklyn, New York, where she taught. She lived in Washington, D.C., where she was married to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. But she actually lived the bulk of her life in Wilmington, Delaware. She was an activist. Mm -hmm. And she started very early, Mm -hmm. around the time that she started her public writing career. So she was a journalist. She was a founding member of the National Organization of um, Colored Women's Clubs. She was a suffragist. Um, She was one of the um, co-founders of an NAACP chapter in Wilmington, Delaware. And for the most part, she was a very proud teacher of English at Howard School, which is a now a, a historical school known for being the first and only school for Black children in that area. Of course, it's it's not now, but um, so she was very instrumental in building a pipeline of educated Black people in that wow. area. Mm-hmm. Wow, she sounds amazing. <laughs> She was. I mean, to have been married three times in the five times, she had a very active social life, which that was part of my amazement as as a um, researcher. Wow. Like the first the first phrase that that popped into my mind is I'm hearing I'm hearing this criticism that people like to give when there's people that like her that that are involved in so many things. It's like stay in your lane. And it's just like it just it sounds like she just went wherever she wanted to go and what was important to her. Yeah, she knew what was important to her because at that particular time, Black women were very much involved in trying to fight for the equality of Black people. And so her mother was enslaved. So Alice Dunbar Nelson is part of that generation of Black people who get an education. She got hers from Strait University, which would become Dillard University, where I graduated from. And those educated Black people were on a mission to prove that Black people had 
a right to citizenship, to fair treatment in society, and to carve out a life, a family life. So she had many lanes that she occupied (laughs) for good reason. I mean, the country certainly benefited from the work that she was doing and that her sisters were doing at that time. So as, as you hear this and you're researching her and you're writing about her, it has to impact you as a, as a human being, obviously, but how do, how do you start seeing these different examples of what she's doing then and bringing it into now and what the work you're doing? Well, because I've been a member of the NAACP for some years, I was president of the chapter in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. Because I had studied other activists and have been and, and still continue to be an advocate for voting rights, and because I have training in journalism, and she was a journalist as well. She was an editorial writer. Hmm. And I happen to have um, degrees in English. So in some ways, I felt like I had to tell her story because there was so much that we had in common. Mm -hmm. So those pieces fit together. I would begin to try to understand her more through a 10-year journey because this was not something that happened overnight. It it took me 10 years of writing and revising and, and revising and doing more research and so on to get to the point that it was published on um, January the 13th. Wow. 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. years. (laughs) Wow. One of the phrases that I read on your website was it's a book about the past. It's also a book about the present that nods to the future. Yes. And I just love that phrase a lot. How does literature and and the work that you did writing this book accomplish that? Well, you know, we are taught to think about literature as being universal, that themes are timeless, which is why people still teach Shakespeare and the Renaissance and so on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I see African-American literature and, and African literature and just the literature written by Black people across the world in much the same way. For me, her work and her life, what she was fighting for then, we're fighting for now, and we will probably continue to fight for some of those things. So during the 10 years that I was writing, we go back and forth about voting rights. Mm -hmm. There's been debates about an anti-lynching bill, which still hasn't been passed in Congress. However, she fought for an anti-lynching bill. She was very vocal about who some of the best people were to run for office because she was active in the Democratic and Republican parties. Uh, It depended on whether or not they met some of the demands of the group that she was working with at the time. So Mm -hmm. she, she switched for a while. And she's a queer woman. She loved, she was married to men, but she also had romantic relationships with women. And so during the time, the 10 years that I've written this, we have seen certainly some changes in attitude. Um, Certainly that um, same-sex marriage is now legal. 
This was something that she had to keep to herself, but I certainly did learn more about uh, what one scholar calls a lesbian network amongst the Black women activists of the time. And more work needs to be done in that area. So uh, that's the past, that's the present, and that's the future. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. It is so interesting to hear that and just realize how much, I mean, how similar things are, just like you said. Mm-hmm. My my mind is blown here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at the same time, it identifies, I think, the work in front of us in terms of what's it going to take so that that's not always going to be the story so that that progress can be made. And she fought most of her life Mm -hmm. for equality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's as long as we have human and we have society, I think that there will always be a fight for um, equality as it relates to something. Right. So we see with her, a woman that tries to balance that by having a social life, by having a professional life. And and she didn't make any money off any of this, by the way. I mean, there were times where where, um, they just didn't know how they were going to be able to cover their bills. They borrowed a lot of money from people for quite a while. We can learn from her the long struggle. Because we also have to remember that those Black teachers who um, taught in those segregated schools also did not get the same salary as their counterparts mm-hmm. at um, who were white at other schools. So that had an, an impact on the quality of life that she had as well, that she and her family had. Mm-hmm. So those fights will continue, I think. They they have to. Mm-hmm. And we're so grateful for people who are in the trenches who are doing the work. So as a writer yourself, what do you learn about the craft of writing from studying a writer who lived, you know, over a hundred years ago? That is a long process. You know, I had to be patient because I've written other books and written articles and they certainly didn't take 10 years. <laughs> right. Um, and this was one that I would send out and I would get these comments and I would think, who in the world read this? Did they read the same thing that I wrote? And so really to get a tough skin around the peer review process and then to understand my role as a peer reviewer, mm-hmm. because I'm on both sides. As a writer, really to be patient and to be kind with myself. And to also, as much as I can, surround myself with supporters. I have the support of a writing group of Black women who um, would give me advice and who would say, you know, of course you're going to get this published. So (laughs) dry your tears and go back to the office and try again. So as you're writing this book over the course of 10 years, I notice that you also have a second book coming out within a mu- within months of each other. Mm-hmm. How do you keep those two books separate or is there overlap in terms of what 
you're experiencing and writing. Yeah, there is some overlap with those two. So the second book, See Me Naked, um, Black Women Defining Pleasure in the interwar, during the interwar era, also deals with respectability politics, as does love activism and the respectable life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. I am interested in Alice's life and how she, and I call her Alice because she changed her name several times before she became Dunbar Nelson. Mm-hmm. But um, her life was about navigating respectability politics as a queer woman who had a public profile, very well respected amongst her peers. But she gave so much of herself to the advancement of the Black community. And I got to a point in my life where I began to wonder, what if Black women weren't so concerned about advancing the community and the race? What if they were just focused on themselves? What does that look like? Was that practice? Did anybody do that? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I look for mm-hmm. and see me naked. And I use the lives of um, Lena Horne, of Moms Mabley, of um, Blues Phenom, Memphis Minnie. And I look at Yolanda Du Bois, who was the daughter of W.E.B. Du Bois to see how they define pleasure for themselves. How did that shift as you researched these people? Well, it was very clear that they wanted to have separate lives from the people that they were perceived as being because all of them were quite public individuals. And so that's what I talk about. I talk about their who those public personas were, and, and we all tend to know who they were publicly. but how they present themselves in that pleasure, which also gives us an opportunity to have pleasure. So people know what they got out of watching Lena Horne and what we still get out of looking at her in film. She was a beautiful woman and she was a wonderful actress. And the same with Moms Mabley. I enjoyed writing about her because I got to laugh a lot. So I am looking forward to talking with her, talking about her more in the public. Uh, And of course, Memphis, many blues singers, they don't have to necessarily hide much about how they're feeling. So when she talks about her sexual needs and desires and what she's going to put up with and not put up with or what she's willing to put up with for a variety of reasons, we believe her because, because <laughs> of her um, soulful mm-hmm. performances. And, and so it was fun listening to her over and over and over again to kind of understand what she was saying um, because of her wonderful Southern accent and to um, think about how she empowered herself through her music. She had this this uh, persona, this reputation of being somebody that that um, one person says she cut off a man's arms in an alley with a razor blade. <laughs> <laughs> Tough. Yeah. Tough woman. There's no evidence that that actually happened, but, <laughs> but 
but it's just the idea of it that right. <laughs> that we have to laugh at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those stories that are, you know, the the myths around people are very fascinating at times. Mm-hmm. Especially in the blues culture. <laughs> <laughs> like Robert Johnson and the Crossroads. Mm-hmm. Yes. <sighs> so as a professor... How do you bring all of these things that you've learned about these amazing women into the classroom to challenge your students? Well, I am teaching a course that is called Black Pleasure. And so the women that I've just described, students will learn more about them. And of course, there are men also. So so we will talk about the blues more broadly and um, comedy more broadly Mm -hmm. in that class. What I also do though is help them to understand my role in uh, helping them to advance their writing skills. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them, I ask them the first day, why are you here? What do you hope to learn in this class? And some of them say that they wanna be better writers. Some of them say that they wanna be better readers. And of course, those are the goals of my literature course. Uh, But of course, the the writing certainly will happen in the other two courses that I teach also. So um, it's a nice journey. Uh, You know, sometimes I have to remind students that the feedback that I give them on their writing is there for a reason. It's not there to hurt them. I know that this may not be what your high school teacher said about your writing, but we are in college now. Mm-hmm. And um, this is part of the process. And let me tell you, I've had my feelings hurt. <laughs> but as someone who has tried to be receptive of feedback, when I'm writing feedback for students, I always try to remember that I am talking to students and not to professor mm-hmm. xy at um some institution i i'm i'm trying to put myself in your classroom right now based mm-hmm. upon just our 30 minutes of conversation right now and it, there it, i get a sense that you just bring a spirited you know spirit to the class and and try to get people talking as much as possible oh yeah certainly it's it's um Yes. <laughs> Students do not get away with listening to me give long lectures. I do not do that. The conversation is open. So I ask questions and I try to get students to engage as much as possible. Do you have a favorite question that you like to draw people out with? Well, what I normally like to ask them so that they can have some agency in the conversation is, is there something that you found to be significant on this point Mm. to to give them a little bit more structure? And it may be on a specific point, which may be about marriage Mm -hmm. or freedom. You know, one of the questions that I like to ask them earlier, because we start by talking about the transatlantic slave trade is what is the difference between freedom and liberation? And I love the responses that I tend to get from students because they're they're thoughtful and they're able to draw out examples from the text to try to help them to understand something that they had not thought that much about before right. my question was posed to them. 
That's another big question. Wow. Mm-hmm. As you teach, as you write, I also notice that you're very involved in the community as well. You mentioned uh, being a part of the NAACP in Flagstaff, Arizona. Mm-hmm. But I also noticed on your website that you interviewed Black Lives Matter protesters. Yes. And and I was curious how that impacted your own life and community-engaged scholarship. Well, that was an experience, a very different experience, because it happened as protests were happening or not too long as protests were happening during the summer and as uh, folks began to come back to campus and to go back to their jobs. It was a collaboration with the library. They were the ones that I reached out to our, our great archivists at UNCG. And I said, have you all thought about trying to do a collection of, of oral histories and interviews? Um, and I'm just wondering also what's going to happen to all this great art that is downtown. And, and that was really where it came from because I had been downtown for an event and I started walking around talking to people that I saw painting. And it just so happens that one of them was a student at UNCG who wasn't an artist, but came and co-opted a, <laughs> a, a board. And it, actually the owner of the of the business came out and said, I'm glad that you're doing this. That person happened to be a kinesiology um, major. So I thought that answered the question to, to, to go back to the curious question, because I was wondering who are these people that are out here painting? Are these people professionals or are they people who are just um, out here with paintbrushes expressing themselves and come to find out through our conversations, it was both. Hmm. We did interviews with some of those folks and with people. We we put out a call, people who had been professional, semi-professional, or people like me who just took pictures with my cell phone. They sent in photos. There were people who, one person who was walking in flip-flops um, <laughs> that melted. Oh, wow. <laughs> donated (laughs) those (laughs) flip-flops. We ended up with something from John Lewis that had been given to someone. So um, we have all of these collections from people who live in Greensboro who wanted to contribute. We have oral testimonies from people who had a connection to Greensboro, but actually they're from other parts of the state. So it became larger than we thought it would be. It was wonderful, despite the fact that I could not actually go out with a crew. We had to do everything virtually, pretty much, because of COVID. This was before shots and you know vaccines and all that. So we had to be very careful, but we didn't want to be deterred from actually doing the work. And so it, it was just a great experience because again, I love to, I, I'm, I'm from, again, the storytelling um, mm-hmm. culture. And so that just gave me an opportunity more to use those skills and to learn more from the people of the community mm-hmm. of all ages, by the way, we, <laughs> I was able to go back to earlier iterations of Black Lives Matter 
and mm-hmm. talk to some folks about um, some of the work that they had done in the earlier years. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. How how did it shift over over the years? What 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 did you notice the difference was between the earlier years and what you were discovering? Well, that there were people who who were actual organizers who had a longer life in organizing. So that was the shift, I think, between the millennials who had that longer history and um, today's generation, I think it's Generation Z, mm-hmm. where the first time that they went out was for that event and they hadn't necessarily done very much since then. They were just reacting to the moment. And it was also interesting because of how memory worked. So if I talk to somebody from the 60s or even the 90s, they could remember details that um, younger people who are 19, 20 years old couldn't remember what street they were on, how they knew about the event, or (laughs) just remember that they were there and that there were lots of people outside and that it was really, really hot. So... (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was I was sort of shocked by that. Yeah. Um, so somebody needs to do a study on memory. <laughs> right. In the digital age or something. Yeah, because I don't know what affects that, but there was a very clear difference between um, the details that people had retained who were older and people who had just a, a month or so before oh. had a certain kind of experience that they just couldn't remember those details. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's mind blowing. Yeah. Wow. What was the response of, from the community as, as they experienced um, the exhibit? Well, it was, it was great. Uh, we weren't the only ones who did some work. The Greensboro historical museum had done some work as well. Mm-hmm. And they did interviews with police off like the chief of police and some other people ours was just focused on protesters activists and organizers i think what also distinguished us from that project was that i was able to go back because of the fact that i was director of african american studies at uncg i knew some folks who had been activists in the community from those earlier years. But I was also able to start a collection from someone who's in his uh, 40s, who has traveled all over the world in the activist work that he does. And so he just sent us a bunch of photos. And I was like, I can't believe you met all these people Uh, (laughs) because of the role that he has taken on. So, um, you know, we have that. And so Greensboro is relatively small. People don't maybe don't think much about it other than what happened in 1960 with the sit-in movement. But this community across generations continues to be very much so a place where people engage with the issues that are taking place right now because they've been engaged with those issues for years. So as you look to the future, how do you keep the culture of storytelling alive and growing into the future without losing, I think, the memory of of the current generation? Yeah, well, certainly continuing to 
bring in black voices into library connect collections and making those public mm-hmm. in terms of digital work. So those those um, collections, not the material collections, but the uh, the the interviews are available online. We are working with some other organizations to get their work online through digitizing documents mm-hmm. and doing interviews. So it is so important to do that preservation because for a long time that preservation was not taking place. I mean, um, and so, you know, we've gotten to a point where we've lost a lot of people who were doing work and we will never really know what that work was or the depth of that work, at least not from their perspective. And then we remember that people pass away and then their children may not think about it or whomever and, and things get tossed in the trash. And I'm like, no, please. <laughs> but let me look through those boxes and, and see if, if, if we can do something with those. That's the work that I am committed to doing, continuing to do the writing, of course, but also branching off into making materials more accessible to people all over the world. It is interesting, too, thinking about the digital world and what the future of storytelling and, and I think, keeping records, like you're saying. You know, like, you know, are we just going to pass on our hard drives and our, our digital access to people in terms of telling these future stories? Mm-hmm. It is interesting, the challenges um, present in, in more of the digital space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when I think about the work that I did on Alice Dunbar Nelson, she, her, she kept <laughs> much of, um, what had an impact on her life, including diaries, hmm. but she died. So that material could have been thrown in a dumpster and we may not yeah. <clears throat> have ever had access, but for the fact of Pauline Young, a librarian, her niece. Mm -hmm. So um, she kept those materials and sold them to University of Delaware. And that's why we have access to this woman's life. But it was amazing to me that that material had been there and no one had written a biography Mm -hmm. on this woman's life. So um, libraries are extremely important, especially archivists. And I hope that more people will think about how they can contribute to um, that field because it's just really important. Well, Tara, as we wrap up our time together, what's one thing you want listeners to take away from our conversation? Well, first of all, read my work (laughs) and learn more about what Black women have been doing, especially during the era of Alice Dunbar Nelson, because I I think that the work of activists usually goes unknown even after death, Mm -hmm. but also to think about your own story and how people may benefit from that story and how you can um, have a positive impact on society and other people who may need to know a little bit about you or a family member or somebody else that you honor and um, admire. Well, final question for you. What book, podcast, or resource is currently blowing your mind? Oh, gosh. When you talk about books, I read, I read, I read (laughs) so much. 
I have read The Henna Artist. Right before that, I read Honoré Fanon's um, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. And so um, those are two works that deal with with um, women and um, transformation and healing and trauma. And so um, those are two books that I know a lot. Well, people are talking about the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, and they should be. But also, I just wanted to make the plug for for um, the henna artist, because that's just a, a beautiful book as well. It's, it's about a woman in India at a particular time who is a, uh, um, who does henna, who's an artist. So. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Green as much as I did. There is so much here, and I try to include as many links as possible in the show notes. Be sure to go to your favorite music uh, streaming service and search for Memphis Mini and Moms Mabley. There's some really great music and comedy to listen to. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.